<clears throat> this is comical. Today's scripture comes from Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, Lord, whom you teach out your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and the upright in heart will follow. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? those who frame injustice by a statute. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring them back to their iniquity and wipe them out from their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. By now you have surely realized that as Pastor Adam preached last week, he is not sitting in his normal spot. I'm very confused. There he is. This would normally be Pastor Jake's week, and I am not Pastor Jake. So, in case you have not heard yet, Pastor Jake is on sabbatical for June and July and August. And some other guys will be up here exhorting you with the word of God during this time. Please be sure to be in prayer for Pastor Jake and his family in this time of rest and refocus and recuperation and reconnection. As you turn to Psalm 94, let's start with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we need you to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Would you please do so for our good and for your glory because of Christ and by your Holy Spirit, amen. Well, we find ourselves this morning in the second week of our Summer of Psalms, something that has become something of a tradition to us here at Redemption City Church. It has been a sweet balm to my soul, and I pray that it would be to yours as well. As mentioned, Pastor Adam unfolded Psalm 67 for us last Sunday with Pentecost Sunday in view, and we saw how that ask and the hope of the people of God were that all the peoples would praise God even to the ends of the earth. As we work through many psalms each summer, 
We hope that you come to appreciate the differences that we find in the Psalms. They are thick and robust, and they provide the necessary depth that we need to endure the Christian life. We hope that they would not be just a simple big book of poems that are in the middle of your Bible when you flip it open. That they wouldn't be just where you go and you kind of dread when you reach that day on your annual reading plan and you realize Psalm 119 sits before you. Pray that it would not be just the place where you go to get inspired to write the latest, coolest worship song. And not just where you would go to find the songbook of our Lord Jesus, though it is all those things. The Psalms should be the place where you can go to find a little bit of everything. The great reformer Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and the summary of the Old Testament. He's largely been identified with the book of Romans, especially 117, that the just shall live by faith, and rightly so. And his commentary on Galatians is exceptionally well known. But the first book that he actually taught as a professor at the University of Wittenberg was the Psalms. This was in 1513, even before his conversion. And his first published work was an exposition of seven of the penitential psalms. So the psalms functioned as something of a pre-evangelism for Martin Luther. Where Romans provided him the thrust of his theology that we would see developed in future years, the depth of the psalms shaped his heart to be thunderously bold for what was to come. And may that be true of us as well. So last week we saw the sweet call to bring more worshipers into the kingdom, and this week we're going to see something a little bit different. But hopefully all along the way we'll see how psalms give a proper, Holy Spirit-inspired expression to the full range of human emotion. If we want to know who God is, and what he has done, and how we should then live, there's hardly a better place to start than the psalms. One note as we get going, I will be using the divine name Yahweh. You heard it read as O Lord this morning to match what is likely in your ESV Bible. But my logic here is simple. God gave it to Moses to use with his people. It's a good name, the best name in fact, and we ought to use it. So I'll be doing so this morning. Now turning our attention to Psalm 94. We don't know who wrote this psalm. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament, assign it to King David. This is tradition. We don't have to be dogmatic here. It's not a hill we need to die on. Simply offer it as a point of interest that we'll develop as we go along. Psalm 94 sits in the middle of a run of kingship psalms, Psalms 93 through 99. And kingship is a very important theme in the psalms because kingship was a very important theme to the people of God. We've lost something of the importance of kingship, certainly, in this place we live in, 2022 America, because we don't understand kingship firsthand. But here's a few examples from this run of kingship psalms. Psalm 93, Yahweh reigns. He is robed in majesty. Yahweh is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Skip Psalm 94 for now. Let's go to Psalm 95. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 96. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 97. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 98. 
Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, Yahweh. In Psalm 99, Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Now back to Psalm 94. Psalm 94 simply assumes his kingship. It's in the middle of this block of kingship psalms. Of course he's the king. Maybe it was written by David, as we mentioned, and that cements its spot in the middle here. But I think most convincingly, as we'll see, his powerful kingship guarantees his victory over the wicked. Now, the main idea that we're going to develop today is that Yahweh shelters his people with his word. Yahweh shelters his people with his word. And you see the outline there in your bulletin. We'll work through it in six brief parts. First, a cry for vengeance. And then the acts of the wicked, the rebuking of the wicked, the blessing of the wise, a lament for the wicked, and finally, a confidence in vengeance. What I want to do with this outline that you see before you is walk through this psalm. We're going to unfold it like one of those old car maps if you don't have GPS and you can never get it folded up back right again. We're going to unfold it. We're going to trace our route through this psalm. And we're going to note a lot of important things that we want to see along this journey. The first three sections of this psalm are going to be like walking up a mountain with sort of a negative feel because walking uphill is hard. And we're going to crest the top. And we're going to pause and take a moment to enjoy the scenery. And we're going to ride a more positive affect back down the other side of this psalm. We're going to notice how the first section and the sixth section pair together. And the second section and the fifth section pair together, and the third and the fourth pair together. So hold that structure in your mind, or use your cheat sheet in your bulletin as we work along. And finally, one of Luther's favorites, Holmes, was Psalm 118, his particular verse 17, which says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of Yahweh. So let us endeavor in that this morning together to recount the deeds of Yahweh in Psalm 94. First, a cry for vengeance in verses 1 and 2. Cry for vengeance. Yahweh, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Psalm 94 begins with a plea. Notice the psalmist's use of the personal covenantal name for God here, Yahweh. This cry is connected to God being personal and imminent, not simply far away and transcendent, though he is those things as well. But he is a God who has condescended, who has come down to make covenant with his people, and they can rely on him accordingly. In ancient Near Eastern treaties that help us understand covenants, when the greater party would come and impose a covenant on the lesser party, that agreement usually included some kind of protective element. And there's a sense of that here, too, where the psalmist is calling out for the protection due. This plea is calling on God to execute vengeance. And notice the repetition that elevates this plea, evoking the sense of extreme desperation of someone down to their last breath. The psalmist repeats God of vengeance for emphasis, calling on God to be his God 
and to do things that are proper to him as his God. And as we'll see later, this emphasis is echoed in verse 23 at the end of this psalm, helping us understand its structure. Now, when we think of God executing vengeance, we ought not think of a reactionary or retaliatory strike or a vindictive response, as that would be improper to God's nature and character. Instead, the sense we should have is one of provision of just rewards. God's vengeance is simply the offender receiving his or her due. And how great a judgment it must be for cosmic treason against the living God. Consider Deuteronomy 32:35, words regarding those who forsake God and his ways. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Or Isaiah 34:8 and 35:4. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. For the judgment pronounced against Nineveh in Nahum chapter 1. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. It shouldn't surprise us that the New Testament is consistent on this point. We have one unchanging God. Romans 12.9 reads, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And our last example here, Paul's words to the Thessalonians and how we are to live in the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And there are plenty of other places in scripture we could continue to develop that theme. But notice that God is retributing. He is retributing. To tribute is to give what is due. God is simply giving back what is due. He is recompensing. He is recompensating. To compensate is to give what is due. God is simply giving back what is due. He is repaying. Pay is to give someone what they are due. So God is simply giving back what is due. He is properly jealous for his own possession to protect it and nourish it and bring it to its full and intended purpose just as he has promised. And note again that the call to repay or to pay back provides us more symmetry again with verse 23 at the end of this psalm, building up that structure for us. The call for God to shine forth harkens back to Moses' final blessing on Israel before he died and the people entered the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2 says this, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Also hear Psalm 80 verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. When the psalmist is asking God to shine forth, he's asking for God to show his splendor and bring low the false lords of the earth. Another ex excerpt from Isaiah. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. 
to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. This is the psalmist's cry for vengeance. Secondly, we'll look at the acts of the wicked in verses three through seven, the acts of the wicked. Yahweh, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, Yahweh, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, Yahweh does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. First thing to notice in this section is that, again, the psalmist appeals to God's covenantal name. And he emphasizes his plea with repetition, just as he did in verse 1. And the next thing I want you to recognize here is how these acts escalate in wickedness. The self-exaltation of the wicked is naturally escalatory. It's never content to be simply one thing. It must grow and grow. John Owen put it well when he said that sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Men may come to that, that sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts, that is, provoking to any great sin with a scandal in its mouth, but yet every rise of lust, might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. So here we see sin escalate from arrogant words to boasting to crushing God's people and afflicting his heritage to killing the widow and sojourner and murdering the fatherless from a simple misuse of language all the way to physically destroying the weakest among us in just two short verses. How much sin is packed into these two verses alone? The wicked exult in their wickedness. And surely you can call to mind right now all sorts of examples where you have seen this to be the case, perhaps even in this month of June of our Lord, 2022. Now we get a sense of just how perverted this exaltation is in that the root of the word exult is the same used to describe the joy of the righteous who have been saved by their God. So this exaltation is a perversion in the truest sense of the word. It has taken something that is good and proper and true and beautiful and twisted it to wicked ends. These who boast are boasting in themselves not in the God who made them. They're building their own little verbal tower of Babel in self-exaltation. This pouring out of their arrogant words is a gushing forth, a spewing out. I think Brother Calvin put it best when he proclaimed, I consider looseness with words no less of a defect than looseness of the bowels. And the wicked harass God's children. In Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses writes, But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. 
The people that the Lord has redeemed belong to him. And any deprivation, any prejudice, any injustice, any trampling on the rights of his people is an assault on the Lord who has promised to care for them. And how much more wicked, more evil, to do so to the most vulnerable, to those who cannot stand up for themselves. Consider Exodus chapter 22, as the Israelites received the law of God at Mount Sinai after being brought out of Egypt. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In God's goodness, he then goes on to describe exactly what it means to properly treat widows and the sojourners and the fatherless, lest we guess ourselves and become our own judges of what is right and wrong. And note that the punishment perfectly fits the crime. Those are sermons for another day. Wrapping up this section, the acts of the wicked, there are no more arrogant words than those in verse 7, presuming Yahweh can neither see nor perceive their wickedness. If the fool says in his heart there is no God, the arrogant says in his heart, Yahweh keeps no record of wrongs against me. And now we come to the top of the negative side of our psalm structure where we start to see the point of this entire psalm brought into focus with the rebuking of the wicked. The rebuking of the wicked, verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, Yahweh, knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. I highly doubt that the tone police would approve of the psalmist's tone here, but I think that tells us more about the tone police than about the psalmist. We just noted that the fool's confession is there is no God. But here we see the psalmist provide a pleading rebuke to such a fool. Stop being stupid and start being wise. And the first step to becoming wise is to confess what you already know, but have been suppressing in unrighteousness. Romans chapter one tells us that everyone already knows that God exists. It has been made plain to them. And the psalmist goes further here with this rhetorical question. Of course the God who exists hears us and sees us. It could be no other way. And verse 10 again is asking a rhetorical question which drives us to an obvious answer. Yahweh disciplines the nations, and if he does this, he certainly addresses the families that make up nations and the individuals that make up families. Genesis chapter 18, part of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah reads, Then Yahweh said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. As judgment came to Sodom and Gomorrah, so it came to the families and individuals who dwelt there. Similarly to Pharaoh in Egypt who would not obey the word of Yahweh. And we see the same with the Assyrians, even the people that God used to bring the sword against the Israelites were then turned and judged for their wickedness as well. These mighty nations, these powers to be reckoned with by man 
face a reckoning before Yahweh because he hears and sees and knows all. When fools continue in their folly, God's judgment finds them out. It is very hard and certainly stupid to live in God's world while ignoring his rules. And so the psalmist rightly rebukes the wicked. Returning to our text, we've crested the mountain and now we're start to descend the other side with a more positive slope. In a sense, it's all downhill from here. We'll start with the blessing of the wise in verses 12 through 15, the blessing of the wise. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, Yahweh, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For Yahweh will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. In stark contrast to the wicked, the dull, the dumb, the foolish, stand those who are taught by God, who hear his word and obey. These ones are blessed by Yahweh with rest, awaiting the final judgment of the wicked. The psalmist uses the same verbs for discipline here as for teach in verse 10, strengthening that contrast between the wise and the wicked. And look at the reason why Yahweh teaches his people. It's to give them rest. His word shelters them. And how long does this shelter last? Until the wicked fall into a pit. There's an immediate application in view here and a long-term one as well. Proverbs 26, 7, 27 tells us that whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Similarly, Ecclesiastes 10.8 tells us that he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. The underlying idea here is reaping what is sown. They have created the pit into which they will fall by their own wicked actions. But not only that, but there is a pit that awaits the wicked at judgment day and this pit will not be dug for them. I'm sorry, this pit will not be dug by them, but for them. And they'll not fall into it temporarily, but be cast into it permanently. And what underlies this rest for the people of God, this sheltering by his word? Look back at verse 14. It's his very own faithfulness to his covenant. He redeems his people, and he'll certainly not let them go, because they are his heritage, and they belong to him. The words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 are sweet here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. God's blessed ones who are wisely discipled and taught of God's law live in hope of justice and vindication and full experience of God's blessing, all grounded in the promises of God. Pagan fools are but a vapor, but the people of God endure because he holds them fast. Let's get back to our text and investigate the Psalms' positive contrast to the acts of the wicked, which we're going to call lament for the wicked. Lament for the wicked in verses 16 through 21. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? 
If Yahweh had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, Yahweh, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Where in verses 8 through 11, the attitude is one of rebuke, here the attitude is a confession of reliance on Yahweh and a softer heart posture towards the wicked. It's as if the psalmist has taken shelter from a storm under a rock and now pauses to peer out to recount the deeds of Yahweh. Note just how personal this section is. Lots of me and my and I. The psalmist confesses that apart from divine intervention, he would be dead in the land of silence. He has looked to no other champion but Yahweh, and Yahweh has heard his cry and responded with rescue by standing in place of the psalmist, by absorbing the acts of the wicked evildoers such that the psalmist is able to endure. The psalmist refers to the steadfast love of Yahweh, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, as the means by which he is upheld. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you know the comfort of verse 19. Let us encourage one another by recounting how God has done this in our lives. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it this way, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author is referring to judgment day and challenging us to encourage each other all the more as this day of Yahweh's proper vengeance approaches. So, brother, he will come, endure. Sister, he is faithful, hold fast. Now let's turn to verses 20 and 21 and notice the alliances that are recognized here. <clears throat> Yahweh does not align with wicked rulers, the kind that enshrine injustice into law, and this little verse forces us to confess that just because something is lawful doesn't mean it's just. And by the same standard, just because something is unlawful doesn't mean it's unjust. We've had to wrestle through these implications over the last couple of years in particular and think this through in real world situations, relying on wisdom drawn from his word and illuminated by his spirit. The wicked may think that they are in the right, but they cannot be right when they violate his word and afflict his people. So Yahweh doesn't align with wicked rulers, but the wicked rulers ally themselves together against his people. They're unified in common wickedness. Why do they make such an alliance? Why do we think this is? Well, the more righteous the people of God are, the more they conform to his standard, to his word, the more clearly they image him. And the more this is the case, the more the wicked are enraged and their hatred for Yahweh is reflected in their actions toward his people. They can't harm him, but they can afflict his people for a time. And notice finally in this section how the wicked are against life and for death. This kingdom of man is destructive by nature and its end is death. 
but the kingdom of God is one of life and flourishing and restoration because his word brings proper order out of chaos. Finally, we reach our last section this morning. It's the gentle foothill of the landing spot of our psalm structure, verses 22 and 23. Confidence in vengeance. The confidence in vengeance. But Yahweh has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. Yahweh, our God, will wipe them out. These two final verses of Psalm 94 bring all the negative tincture we saw climbing up to the apex in sections one through three, and the positively tinged section in sections, positively tinged tension in sections four and five to resolution. There is a fortress for the people of Yahweh to retreat to, the rock which shelters them from every storm, and the rock is Yahweh himself. There is no other lasting shelter. And not only is Yahweh the shelterer of his people, but he also conquers all his enemies. In verse 23, we see the end of the wicked rebels who refuse to bow the knee to the king. The little pits they have stumbled into along their way have culminated, grown into their ultimate expression. We see consistently here that what is brought back to them is the just reward of their very own actions as their iniquity gets brought back on them. The psalmist again repeats a phrase for us to consider, tying the wiping out of the wicked to the vengeance cried for in verse 1. The psalmist rests in the knowledge that Yahweh will bring proper judgment to completion at the proper time. This cry will be answered because Yahweh is faithful to every last one of his covenant promises. The language continues to encourage the faithful that Yahweh is their God and they are his possession. We'll land this plane together with just a few final thoughts. I guess I mixed my mountain and flying metaphors. But There's a lot of pressure today to be on the right side of history. Pick your topic and someone's probably screaming that you are on the wrong side of history. I don't know much, but I know one thing, and that's that if I'm on the side of Yahweh, I'm on the right side of history, no matter what it costs me in this world. It may cost me my family, it may cost me my friends, it may cost me my job. A lot of us here have experienced that. But with Yahweh, our pleasures forevermore, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Scripture speaks often about the widow and the sojourner and the fatherless, and maybe you feel this in your own life. You may feel quite widowed, whether an actual widow or a quasi-widow with an unbelieving or barely believing spouse or no spouse at all. Take shelter in Yahweh and trust that he will provide you the protection and care and provision and love you need. You may feel like a sojourner, one who has no people where you find yourself, an insufficient sense of belonging or a weariness of being without a lasting and established home. Take shelter in Yahweh and discover how he provides the community his people need. You may feel like the fatherless without the careful instruction of one who ought to train you up and send you out into the world without the protection from harm you desire. 
take shelter in Yahweh, whose words of instruction are perfectly wise and whose protection never falters. To the believer, this psalm calls you to be firm, yet patient in judgment. There are rebukes to be given, certainly, and there is also patience to be displayed. There will be times in this life where you want the vengeance of Yahweh to come swiftly, but in his perfect wisdom, it may be reserved for the last day. And your duty until that day is to let love cover over a multitude of sins and to live peaceably with all men insofar as it depends on you. We must be confident enough in Yahweh and his wisdom to allow him to defeat his enemies, either by displaying his mercy and drawing them to himself or by delivering to them what their sin has earned. But he is the one to make that determination and not us. And to the unbeliever, this psalm confronts you with the fact that Yahweh's vengeance will certainly come. Do not count his apparent delay as approbation of your wickedness, but instead as a kind forbearance intended to lead you to repentance. And not only has he instructed you with his word, but even more, he himself has entered into his own creation, the second person of the Trinity, the word made flesh, who lived the life that you should have lived in perfect accord with the word of Yahweh, who suffered the just wrath of Yahweh on behalf of sinners, dying the death due to sinners on the cross. But this incarnate word was raised from the dead on the third day. And all who take shelter in this rock, this Christ, have peace with God that can never be shaken. Turn to him in repentance and faith as your only hope in life and death. And what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 will be true of you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To exalt in wickedness is guaranteed to be a losing strategy. And so turn while there is yet time. Finally, Isaac Watts was an English nonconformist congregational minister in the early 1700s, and he was a genius. He wrote textbooks on geography and astronomy and philosophy and grammar, but probably what he's most known for is his hymns. He wrote something like 750 of them, such bangers as, when I survey the wondrous cross and joy to the world. And he summarized Psalm 94 this way. O God, to whom revenge belongs, proclaim thy wrath aloud. Let sovereign power redress our wrongs. Let justice smite the proud. They say, the Lord nor sees nor hears. When will the fools be wise? Can he be deaf who formed their ears or blind who made their eyes? He knows their impious thoughts are vain and they shall feel his power. His wrath shall pierce their souls with pain in some surprising hour. But if thy saints deserve rebuke, thou hast a gentler rod. Thy providences and thy book shall make them know their God. Blessed is the man thy hands chastise, and to his duty draw. Thy scourges make thy children wise when they forget thy law. But God will ne'er cast off his saints, nor his own promise break. He pardons his inheritance for their Redeemer's sake. Let's pray. O God of vengeance, have mercy on us and pardon us for our Redeemer's sake. 
We confess that apart from Christ, we too are nothing but your just wrath. Yet, in your goodness, you redeemed us and brought us into your family to be your heritage by sheltering us with the righteousness of the eternal word. Would you cause us to forget anything that was said here today which was unhelpful for building up your people to righteousness and cause us to walk in your ways as we rejoice in the mercy you have shown to us. We pray these things in Christ Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.